Once again, to the Raw Attitude Podcast on the Questionable Endeavor Network, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. I don't have too many notes up front this week since we have a lot to get into for this episode of Raw, but I do want to be sure to thank you, the fans of the Raw Attitude Podcast, for making November the sixth straight month where we set a new monthly listenership record for the podcast. I started this show just about a year ago not knowing if anyone would actually listen to it, but you definitely have, and I am certainly very appreciative of that. So thank you very much. And on that note... Well, let's jump right into Raw. It is Monday, June 15th, 1998, and we are live from the Freeman Coliseum in San Antonio, Texas. Some other noteworthy events which have occurred in this very building include the 1994 Survivor Series, where Bob Backlund won the WWF title from Bret Hart, and also the one-off 1991 pay-per-view this Tuesday in Texas, a.k.a. the show where Hulk Hogan ended The Undertaker's first WWF title reign after a whopping six days, and also the same show where Jake Roberts slapped Miss Elizabeth in the face. Yep, that actually happened. And on a futuristic note, the Freeman Coliseum will also be the host venue for NXT TakeOver San Antonio during the weekend of the 2017 Royal Rumble. But of course, when I say San Antonio, as a wrestling fan, you probably make a connection to one superstar in particular. Would he make an appearance for this 1998 episode of Monday Night Raw? Well, here's a quick note from the June 29, 1998 edition of the Wrestling Observer. Shawn Michaels was at a WWF event for the first time since WrestleMania when they did the TV in San Antonio. The report from those who saw him is that he mentally appeared in better shape than in a long time. He had cut his hair, he was able to sit down and stand upright for periods of time without excruciating pain, which is an improvement. Michaels doesn't want to get the back operation to fuse discs that a lot of people think he may need to return to wrestling and just wants to rest and rehab. The basic word right now is that in about three months, he will undergo a major exam of his back, and at that point, they'll have an idea as to if or when he'll return. The WWF has no plans written in stone regarding a program for Michaels, but is hopeful he can start at Royal Rumble. There is at least a possibility being taken seriously that he'll never wrestle again. Michaels left the building before the taping started, and there was no thought to putting him on television, since the feeling was it didn't make sense to reintroduce the character when there would be no follow-up on it for months, or maybe until next year. So there you have it, the Heartbreak Kid was indeed in attendance for a little while, but he left before the show began. Also, it was a bit eerie reading that part where the WWF was unsure as to whether or not HBK would ever be able to wrestle again. Obviously, we now know how that story ends up playing out, but clearly there was a lot of uncertainty around this time for old HB Shizzle. And now, with all that background info out of the way, let's get into the show. We open with a recap of last week's awards ceremony, where Vince McMahon was presented with the Humanitarian of the Year Award for his many charitable endeavors. However, in true Vince fashion, he seemingly ended up using the ceremony as an excuse to trap Stone Cold Steve Austin as Kane and Mankind jumped the WWF champion and beat the crap out of him. The show awesomely went off the air with Austin being rolled inside of a casket as Kane lit the turnposts on fire. From there, we cue up the opening theme song, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. A few of the noteworthy signs this week include Vince is a woman, I've eaten in China, Val Venus uses Viagra in between takes. Newest Spice Girl, Hulk Hogan, Old Spice. Suffocate Me, Sable. And a man holding a sign which proclaims himself the pecan of the WWF, which completely baffles me. Must be a big fan of delicious nuts which can be used to make pies. We officially begin the show with, what's this? 
Sable heading to the ring. Yes, that's right, Sable. Remember how Mark Merrow beat her at Over the Edge to officially ban her from the WWF forever, and then last week they actually ran a sappy tribute video for her on Raw? Well, she's back from her forced retirement after being gone for 15 whole days. I hope you didn't miss her too much. Before Sable begins speaking, the camera pans upward to show that, in this very building, the Hell in a Cell cage is hanging above the ring. For those of you scoring at home, this is the official Monday Night Raw debut of the Hell in a Cell, as it had previously only been shown eight months prior at the Bad Blood pay-per-view in October of 1997, when the cage initially debuted. But anyway, back to Sable. In a very strange moment, she then happily introduces us to the man who is responsible for bringing her back to the WWF, Mr. Vince McMahon. I say this is a strange moment because Sable is still clearly hugely over with the crowd, but she's smiling as she introduces the man who is currently the biggest heel on the roster. Vince then walks to the ring to his usual chorus of boos and Austin chants, and he grabs a microphone. He then pulls a piece of paper out of his jacket pocket and asks Sable to read a prepared statement for him, and, shockingly, Sable can actually read. In fact, since I'm a bit light on audio clips this week, take a listen to the statement which Vince forces her to deliver where the boss denies having any involvement in last week's assault of Stone Cold Steve Austin. I, Vince McMahon, the Humanitarian of the Year, resent any and all accusations that I, last week, in my finest hour, would stoop so low as to use legitimate charitable organizations to further my personal agenda against Stone Cold Steve Austin. Huh. I hereby publicly disavow any reference or knowledge of the willful and heinous attack perpetrated on the current WWF champion one week ago. I remain steadfast in my resolve to be a caring, generous, and even jovial WWF owner. Bring the parties responsible for last week's attack on Stone Cold to justice. Thank you for your kindness and understanding, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Vince then takes the microphone back, and creepily, he kisses Sable on the cheek when he does so. Ew. He asks the crowd to applaud for the return of Sable, but before Vince can exit the ring... Stone Cold Steve Austin's music hits. Always a gentleman, Austin takes Sable by the hand and escorts her out of the ring, presumably to lead her out of harm's way. He then grabs a microphone of his own and says that when Sable was forced to read that prepared statement, he threw up about six times. As a bit of a fun side note, he then utters the phrase, chicken shit, which the WWE Network does not bleep, and he tells Vince he's going to put his foot up his ass. Vince pleads with Austin to listen to reason and not act in a physical, violent way, so Austin asks the crowd to give him a hell yeah if they want him to react in a physical, violent way. You can probably imagine how they respond. Austin then proceeds to start walking toward Vince as he scampers around the ring in an attempt to escape him. However, as Vince is running away, he pleads for Stone Cold to believe him that it was actually someone else, a rather unlikely person, who masterminded the attack last week. Take a listen. Listen to reason, please, just once. I'm begging you, just listen to The Undertaker. What? The Undertaker. No, no. The Undertaker. It was The Undertaker. I swear. I swear on my grandmother's kittens. I know. I know that this is preposterous, but but hear me out. Please hear me. Just hear me out this once. Who was it? Who was it that challenged you two weeks ago? 
who was it that walked into the ring and said, I want your WWF championship? Who was it? It was The Undertaker. That's who it was. It was The Undertaker. Stone Cold, that's your WWF championship, not The Undertaker's. But let me, I know this is far-fetched, but hear me out. Last week, no, no, last week, The Undertaker knew what he was doing. Undertaker, he knew I was going to call the cops on him. I had to think about it, think about it. Because when The Undertaker came down and he drove Superstar after Superstar choke slams with a canvas and he wreaked havoc, he knew I'd call the cops. And you know what? I fell for it, you fell for it, and everybody else did too. Because think, he surrounded himself with those cops just so he wouldn't have to come down for the save. I know it sounds far-fetched, but that's what happened. I couldn't believe it myself. Just remember one thing, The Undertaker is from the dark side, Stone Cold. He's from the dark side. And in my book, The Undertaker might as well be the devil himself. And he wants. As you can probably guess from that dong, The Undertaker then briskly walks down the ramp, and Vince takes this opportunity to duck out of the ring. One quick side note, though. In that clip, did Vince attempt to prove how serious he was to Austin? By swearing on his grandmother's kittens? And even more strangely, is that what causes Austin to consider that he might actually be telling the truth? Well, hell, if you're swearing on those beloved kittens, the man must be serious. Anyway, Taker stares at Austin, then picks up a microphone, and, much like Kurt Angle, he says, It's true. Not Vince's conspiracy theory, but rather it's true that The Undertaker did indeed challenge Austin for the WWF title a few weeks ago, but he did it like a man, with respect for Austin, without any sort of maneuvering. He says Vince's conspiracy is a lie, and the camera then zooms in on the boss, who does one of his classic Vince McMahon nervous gulps. Taker tells Vince he may make a living from manipulating the minds of people who are weaker than he is, but he will never be able to manipulate The Undertaker. And then, the lights go out, signaling the arrival of Kane, Paul Bearer, and Mankind. And I believe this is the first instance where we see Foley wearing the Mankind mask along with a business shirt and tie, which comes to be a signature outfit for the character. The three of them stand at the top of the ramp, and Paul Bearer has a mic of his own. He congratulates The Undertaker on his award-worthy performance, but he knows that Vince McMahon had nothing to do with the attack. In fact, Bearer then claims that it was he and The Undertaker who worked together to come up with the plan. However, Bearer then says that he has gone far enough with The Undertaker, so instead, what he wants tonight is a tag team match, Kane and Mankind versus The Undertaker and Stone Cold Steve Austin inside Hell in a Cell. Fucking sweet. One quick side note, if you've ever watched an episode of the Monday Night Wars on the WWE Network, at the top of every episode they show a clip of Vince McMahon raising his arms in the air and looking toward the ceiling, and this is where that particular clip comes from. Fun fact. Bearer then concludes the segment by congratulating Taker and Austin because they are now on the entrance ramp on the highway to hell. You may want to remember that particular phrase because it's going to come into play as the summer of 1998 rolls on. But the important part here is that we now have our first ever Hell in a Cell match on Monday Night Raw scheduled for tonight, and that's pretty goddamn awesome. Certainly, that's a pretty tough opening act to follow, but we then segue into a King of the Ring qualifying match, which is actually an interesting matchup. WWF Intercontinental Champion The Rock versus Vader. As usual, the Nation of Domination attempts to walk to the ring with The Rock, but yet again, Commissioner Slaughter and some WWF referees intervene and force them to head backstage. Of particular note is the fact that Owen Hart, The Godfather, and Mark Henry were accompanying The Rock, but not D'Lo Brown. More on that later. As for the Rock-Vader match, it went for a little less than five minutes, but it was enjoyable. One noteworthy spot was when Vader came off the second rope and hit Rock with a big splash, but The Rock was surprisingly able to kick out at two. You'd think having 450 pounds crash down on top of you from high in the air would be enough to finish someone off, but hey, that's where Vader's at these days. 
Impressively, The Rock also managed to pick Vader up for a scoop slam before hitting him with a people's elbow, but that only got a two count as well. Eventually, Rock clotheslined Vader over the top rope, and he then proceeded to distract the referee. While he was doing that, Mark Henry ran down to ringside, so apparently Commissioner Slaughter and those referees made the nation go backstage, and then they just fucked off to go do something else while leaving them unattended. Henry then hit Vader with a big splash on the floor, and he then ran backstage again while Rock continued to distract the ref. Rock then rolled Vader back into the ring, hit him with a rock bottom, and that was enough to score the three count and advance Rocky into the next round of the King of the Ring tournament, where he will now face the winner of tonight's Triple H versus X-Pac match. Yes, you heard that correctly. DX members Triple H and X-Pac are scheduled to go one-on-one tonight. And that actually segues us perfectly into our next portion of the show, a pre-taped segment which is labeled as DX Drop-In Knowledge. The Road Dog is standing in front of a chalkboard which has Triple H versus X-Pac Match of the Year written on it. He proceeds to give each one of them advice for the match, but basically this segment is just an excuse for Road Dog to call X-Pac scrawny and make fun of Triple H's large nose, which Hunter denies having, apparently because he does not own a working mirror. After a commercial break, we get yet another Edge vignette, but this is one they've actually already shown on Raw before, so maybe they've finally begun to run out of material. For those of you scoring at home, this is now the seventh straight week with an Edge vignette on Raw, but they will finally be coming to an end because next week, at long last, we will get Edge's debut match. Strangely, the vignette doesn't actually tell us that he will be debuting next week, but there's a quick spoiler for you. Our next match is Double J Jeff Jarrett versus Double D Darren Drozdov. Jarrett is once again accompanied by greatest character ever Tennessee Lee, but not the team of Southern Justice, even though he just debuted them as his bodyguards only two weeks prior. Just a few short seconds into the match, Mark Merrow and Jacqueline walk to the ring, presumably to scout the competition, since Merrow will be facing Jarrett in the next round of the King of the Ring tournament. Merrow walks over to the commentator's table and asks Jim Ross what the hell Sable is doing back in the WWF, but JR tells him he'll have to take that up with Vince McMahon. Merrow says that he's going to have to take matters into his own hands from now on, and sure enough, he ends up having to do just that as Jacqueline and Tennessee Lee end up getting in each other's faces, with Jackie slapping Lee in the face. Jarrett then rolls out of the ring to get between them, which allowed Merrow to hit Jarrett with a low blow behind the referee's back. Draws then simply rolled Double J back into the ring and pinned him because, apparently, getting punched in the balls is enough to keep someone down for a three count. Actually, now that I think of it, maybe that does make sense. I think I'd probably be down on the ground for at least that long. Also, I have to say that the booking of Draws here is very curious. Last week, he lost cleanly to friggin' Chains, but this week he goes over on Jeff Jarrett, who has barely lost any matches since he reverted to his country singer gimmick a few months prior. It's almost like Vince Russo is just weighing it on a week-to-week basis or something. Before going to our next commercial break, we see a door with the name Val Venus on it, and we hear women moaning in ecstasy behind it. To which I say, is the WWF cool with Val working on his other job while he's still employed with them? You would think they would want him to be dedicated exclusively to wrestling, but apparently he's still allowed to make a little bit of money on the side. We then cut to another DX drop-in knowledge segment, and this time it's Billy Gunn in front of the chalkboard. He asks Hunter and X-Pac if each of them knows whose side China is going to be on during their match, and holy mackerel, is that ever a prophetic statement by Mr. Ass. Billy, let's just say that China doesn't have to choose between them. She ends up having them both. Our next match is the aforementioned Val Venus versus Chains, and once again, Val ends up cutting a pretty mediocre promo. He says that people say things come bigger in Texas, but that statement was never true until he came there today. D-minus for effort there, Valboski. At this point, I also want to call attention to a couple male fans in the crowd who are dressed like Val, shirtless with towels around their waists. Pretty amusing, but the funny part is that they're actually holding a sign which says, We rise for Val Venus. So, does that mean Val Venus has proudly homosexual fans? If so, I give those guys a lot of credit because walking into a Raw taping in Texas in 1998 was probably pretty hostile territory for them, so kudos to you, gentlemen. Early on in the match, Jim Ross makes some speculation as to why the Hell in a Cell cage was in the arena tonight in the first place, and I'm going to play the clip for you so you can hear that Michael Cole completely misses the point of what JR was saying. 
Stop and think about it, folks. I mean, the, 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 the hell in the cell has been hanging here all afternoon. Now, who authorized it to be hung? Who, who made the phone call to hang the hell in the cell? Who knew that Paul Bear was going to challenge uh, anybody for a hell in the cell matchup, much less the Undertaker and Stone Cold Steve Austin? What about Mr. McMahon? I mean, he, he knows where the cell's kept. I mean, maybe he's involved in all this. Maybe he's running this whole thing. That's what I'm saying. The point being is that you got to think that there may be more than one or two people involved in this conspiracy. Yep, that guy is still employed by the same company 18 years later. Anyway, the Venus Chains match got just under five minutes of ring time, and truthfully, that was probably a bit too long because it wasn't all that great. The finish of the match came when Val blocked a superplex attempt by Chains and tossed him to the canvas. He then followed it up with a money shot to score the three count and remain undefeated in the WWF. Nothing too special there. However, there is one very interesting note to take away from this match. This is the final WWF match for Chains. I know this probably comes as a bit of a surprise since his stablemates in the Disciples of Apocalypse are still very much involved in the tag team scene at this point, but the career of the DOA's leader is now, well, DOA. Chains' real name is Brian Lee, and he's actually the real-life cousin of The Undertaker, which may explain why he had a job in wrestling for so long, despite, shall we say, not having the most talent. He even got to main event a pay-per-view during his run with the company, as you may recall that he was brought into the WWF in 1994 as the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase's Under Faker, where he then had a match against the real Undertaker at SummerSlam 1994. It was... not great. But of course, as is the custom here, whenever a wrestler has his final match on Raw, we must do the honorable thing and send chains to wrestler heaven. member down, two to go. We then go backstage where Kevin Kelly is with The Undertaker, not The Underfaker. He asks Taker if he thinks he can trust Stone Cold Steve Austin when they team up later tonight, to which Taker wisely says, how can he trust a man who lives by the motto, don't trust anybody? Good job putting him in his place there, Taker. That was actually a pretty stupid question. We then cut to our third DX drop and knowledge segment of the night, because we clearly haven't yet gotten the idea that Triple H and X-Pac will be fighting each other later tonight. This time around, they're not actually dropping any knowledge at all. Instead, Hunter and X-Pac are giving each other a hard time about laying down for each other in the match. The segment ends with Hunter handing him some breath mints and telling him that his breath stinks, which, for some reason, reminds me of that fan sign from earlier tonight, which says, I've eaten in China. Can't imagine why that came to mind. I don't know. Oops, sorry. And now it's time for our next match, Boring White Meat Babyface Dustin Runnels versus Mark Marrow, accompanied by Jacqueline. Right before the match begins, Jeff Jarrett, Tennessee Lee, and Southern Justice head to ringside, which makes me wonder why the hell Southern Justice weren't out there earlier when Marrow interfered and cost Jarrett his match. Jarrett actually ends up joining the commentary team, but I would have much preferred it if it had been Tennessee Lee instead. At one point, Marrow actually hit Dustin with a top rope Hurricane Rana, which looked very nice. At that point, Double J got up on the ring apron to taunt Marrow, and then, to add yet another distraction into the mix... Sable walked down the ramp. An irate Marrow mistakenly turned his back on Dustin, who then came up from behind, 
hit him with a bulldog, and picked up the victory. However, because Dustin is such a jobber, once the bell rings, they don't even play any music for him. Because he doesn't have any. Now that's just sad. We then go to our fourth DX drop in knowledge segment of the night, with Triple H and Xbox still bickering. Of all people, China actually speaks up and tells them to settle their differences in the ring like men. Funny enough, I believe this is actually the first time on this podcast where we have heard China speak English. We previously saw her speak Spanish when DX was recruiting Los Bariquas to do their dirty work for them, but this was actually the first time we heard her speak American. Clearly, even more history is being made here tonight. We then go backstage where Kevin Kelly is with the victorious Dustin Runnels. Kevin says that getting a win must feel good, but Dustin's only response is that he wants to thank his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hmm... Changing from a sexually androgynous pervert to a born-again Christian, Mike Pence would be proud. And now it's on to our next match, and yes, they're actually doing it. DX member Triple H versus DX member X-Pac in the final King of the Ring qualifying match. A couple quick notes here. This marks the WWF debut of X-Pac's personal Degeneration X theme song, but more importantly, this is Sean Waltman's first match in the WWF since he lost to Savio Vega on the May 20th, 1996 episode of Monday Night Raw. This will also be his first match in any company since October 14th, 1997, when he defeated Hector Garza at a taping of WCW Saturday Night. He was dealing with a neck injury around this time, which has kept him out of wrestling action for the past eight months, but he is now healthy enough to compete, and what better opponent for him to have in his first match back than his old buddy Triple H. Before the match begins, X-Pac and Hunter do the crotch chop together as the X-shaped fireworks go off, but as soon as Triple H turns his back, X-Pac immediately rolls him up and tries to pin him, so apparently there is no honor among thieves. Shortly thereafter, Hunter took the advantage in the match, so X-Pac rolled to the floor for a breather. China then emerged from backstage and walked down the ramp, and she then proceeded to toss X-Pac back into the ring, much to his dismay. So before the match, they had played it up as though they weren't sure whose side China would be on, but now it appears as though she will be siding with the man who she's been dating for the past two years. Well, that kind of makes sense. Except that a few minutes later, X-Pac hit Hunter with a spinning heel kick, so Triple H ducked out to the floor, and China then threw him right back into the ring too. Well, at least she's being fair, I suppose. Shortly thereafter, Hunter clotheslined X-Pac back down to the arena floor, but it was at this point that we heard a familiar voice over the PA system. None other than The Rock, who was up in the stands, taunting Triple H. While Hunter was staring in Rocky's direction, Owen Hart snuck up on X-Pac and dropped him crotch first onto the steel barricade, and then he ran off through the crowd. The Rock then told Hunter to turn around to see the damage that had been done, so Hunter ran over to X-Pac, who was now seemingly suffering from a penile injury. The referee then started his 10 count because both men were on the arena floor. Hunter told X-Pac to get back in, but his tallywhacker was too injured for him to continue. X-Pac could then be heard telling Triple H to get in the goddamn ring, so Hunter rolled back in just in time, resulting in a count-out victory and thereby advancing Triple H into the next round of the King of the Ring tournament. After the match ended, Hunter and China went over to X-Pac to check on him, and the New Age Outlaws came out from backstage as well. The whole scene is actually pretty amusing, because they're playing it up as though X-Pac has a severe injury, but he's grabbing his dick the entire time, so that just makes it a bit less serious. DX then carries him backstage, where he will hopefully be able to find a bag of ice as soon as possible. Jim Ross then informs us that all of our King of the Ring qualifiers have now concluded, and the second round of matches will begin next week. Our matchups for the quarterfinals are Ken Shamrock vs. Mark Henry, Jeff Jarrett vs. Mark Marrow, Dan the Beast Severn vs. Owen Hart, and, most intriguingly, The Rock vs. Triple H. Stay tuned next week to see how those end up going down. We then hear a strange theme music, and the camera pans over to the ramp to show us that we are now being joined by none other than... Avatar. And by that, I don't mean one of the big blue Navi creatures from the James Cameron movie. I mean Al Snow's Avatar character from his first WWF run in 1995. He's wearing the same red mask he used to wear, and, as you might expect, Head is also wearing the same mask as well. A frustrated Jerry the King Lawler then gets up from his commentary position and heads into the ring, but we go to a commercial first. When we return, we join Lawler mid-promo in the ring with Avatar. 
He says that he knows it's Al Snow under the mask, so Al immediately removes it and mockingly refers to Vince McMahon as a marketing genius. Al then says that he realizes that asking Lawler for a meeting with Vince all these weeks has been a waste of time, so instead he's here to make two separate citizens' arrests. He's charging Vince McMahon with attempted murder because he tried to kill his career with an Aldo Montoya-looking gimmick, and he is charging Jerry Lawler with lewd conduct, which, if you look at the King's history with the law, actually makes quite a bit of sense. However, Al's logic is that Lawler should be brought up on lewd conduct charges because Lawler keeps promising him a meeting with Vince, but instead, the King keeps, and I quote, slipping him the sausage and giving him the ride on the old baloney pony. Alrighty then. Lawler then tells Al that he will never get a meeting with Vince if he keeps carrying around a mannequin head, so the king grabs head and tries to toss it into the crowd, but before he can do so, Al starts punching him. Referee Jack Doan then tries to get between them, but Al actually picks Doan up and hits him with a scoop brain buster, which he calls the snowplow. That distraction allowed Lawler to seize the momentum by whipping Al off the ropes, but Al then whacked him in the balls and face with head, which caused Jim Ross to exclaim that, of course... The king got head twice. Two security guards then ran into the ring, and Al proceeded to hit each of them weakly with head, which looked pretty bad. He then took off through the crowd, but not before hitting Lawler with head one more time as well. Now, I must say, even though the character is obviously quite silly, there was a bit of an edge to Al Snow up to this point, because he had been portrayed as an ECW outsider invading the WWF and demanding to speak with the boss of the company, but a lot of that mystique was quickly killed in this segment when he was hitting 48-year-old Jerry Lawler and some security guards with some really weak-looking offense. I'm not sure how long it takes before the character devolves into a pure comedy act in the WWF, but I imagine it probably isn't long after this, which is particularly interesting because Al had just main-evented ECW's Wrestlepalooza pay-per-view only six weeks before this episode of Raw. And yes, you heard that correctly, Al Snow main-evented a pay-per-view. If you want to hear more about that, definitely check out the new Blood Rising podcast because they just covered Wrestlepalooza about a month ago. Good stuff. After a quick break, we get yet another DX Super Soka commercial, this time with X-Pac and the New Age Outlaws interrupting Michael Cole on the set of Livewire and spraying him. It was pretty dumb, but it featured Michael Cole being humiliated, so I give it five stars. And speaking of Michael Cole, this then segues us back to the live episode of Raw, where Cole was backstage with Stone Cold Steve Austin. I feel like they probably should have aired that Super Soaker ad earlier in the broadcast, so we didn't get two consecutive segments with a soaked, then not soaked Michael Cole, but obviously, I'm no Kevin Dunn. Cole asks Austin if he can trust The Undertaker, to which Austin obviously says, Don't trust anybody. And when he asks if The Undertaker should trust him, Stone Cold says no, presumably because, Don't trust anybody. Will Michael Cole never learn? Our next match is Nation of Domination members Owen Hart and Mark Henry versus, holy shit, the badass dream team of Ken Shamrock and Dan the Beast Severn, with JR informing us that these bitter enemies are only teaming together tonight because the WWF ordered them to do so. And not only are they teaming together, but we even get footage of them fighting each other in UFC, with Jim Ross informing us that each man holds a victory over the other. JR also lets us know that Severn separated D'Lo Brown's pectoral muscle from his chest cavity during their match last week, so I just hope that D'Lo is wearing some sort of device to protect his chest when he eventually returns to action. As for this match, I really enjoyed it, and not just because it was amusing to watch Dan Severn keep his gray t-shirt on for the entirety of the match. Severn played the face in peril for a little while until tagging in the always intense Shamrock. Unfortunately for the world's most dangerous man, when Shamrock went for a Hurricane Rana, Owen blocked it, dropped him to the ground, and put him in the sharpshooter. But before Shamrock could tap, Triple H and the New Age Outlaws ran into the ring to jump Owen from behind as payback for his earlier testicular assault on X-Pac, and this, of course, resulted in a disqualification victory for Owen and Mark Henry. However, the schmozziness didn't end there, as Vader then ran out from backstage to attack Mark Henry for his interference in Vader's match earlier tonight. Owen Hart and Ken Shamrock continued brawling at the top of the aisle, but then the rest of the Nation of Domination ran down to the ring to brawl with DX. Meanwhile, Dan Severn was content to seemingly brawl with anyone, as it looked like he was taking shots at members of both DX and the Nation. A bunch of WWF officials eventually ran down to ringside and separated everyone, and then they played DX's music, even though this match didn't have any DX members in it. 
I would have preferred a cleaner finish, but if nothing else, this schmozzy ending served as a reminder of just how loaded the WWF's mid-card is right now. When you have The Rock, Triple H, Owen Hart, and Ken Shamrock just below the main event level, you know you're in good shape. After a commercial break, we go to our next match, the first ever Tag Team Royal Rumble. Yes, you heard that correctly, a Tag Team Royal Rumble. The concept is exactly what you would think. Two tag teams start in the ring, and every 30 seconds, a new tag team comes out from backstage. If one member of a team is thrown over the top rope, the other member of the team must then leave the ring as well. The winning team will then become the number one contenders for the New Age Outlaws WWF Tag Team titles. The first team to enter the match was LOD 2000, but in what turns out to be quite a surprise, the second team in the match is Kane and Mankind. Yes, that's right, the two men who were scheduled to face Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker later tonight in a Hell in a Cell match are now also involved in the Tag Team Royal Rumble. I guess you could say that's a testament to how weak the Tag Team division is in the WWF right now. After the two teams brawl for a bit, our third team enters the match, Bombastic Bob and Bodacious Bart, the new Midnight Express, who are making their first appearance on Raw in two months, so clearly this gimmick has been successful. 30 seconds later, our next team out is the Headbangers, who are still somehow wrestling in the year 2016. 30 seconds after that, there are still no teams eliminated from the match, and our next competitors to enter are Skull and 8-Ball. After 30 more seconds, the ring begins to fill up even further, as our next team to enter the match is the duo of Kurgan and Golga. As a reminder, the Jackal introduced us to his Parade of Human Oddities three weeks ago on Raw, and they have not been seen on the show since then. Kurgan was not initially shown to be a member of the group, but apparently he has now joined them. It's also important to note that Kurgan and Golga are still being portrayed as monster heels, so they are currently in that weird middle ground where they have not yet transitioned into South Park-loving goofballs. And shortly after they enter the ring, we get our first elimination of the match as Kane clotheslined Bodacious Bart over the top rope, ending the night for the new Midnight Express. And that particular elimination is quite noteworthy because, ladies and gentlemen, this ends up being the final Monday Night Raw match for the new Midnight Express. Since the team formed back in March, Bombastic Bob and Bodacious Bart competed together in a grand total of five matches on Raw, garnering one win, two losses, and two draws. And so, even though we will end up seeing both men again in different capacities for the second time tonight, as is the custom, we must send the new Midnight Express to Wrestler Heaven. fitting tribute to their run as a tag team, let's move on and pretend they never existed. The next team to enter the tag team Royal Rumble was an interesting one. We got the Monday Night Raw debut of Too Much, a team consisting of Brian Christopher and Scott Taylor. Now, I'm no expert, but I think it's clear that a tag team with those two guys in it will never draw any money. The next team to enter was the random mishmash of Farouk and Steve Blackman because, well, they're starting to run out of people backstage. And the next duo out further proves that point, as it's time for Bradshaw and Taka Michinoku to enter the match. And as soon as they do, we get our second elimination as Animal backdropped Skull out of the ring, taking out the Disciples of Apocalypse. And then, at long last, our tenth and final team comes to the ring, Terry Funk and Scorpio. Shockingly, shortly after they enter the match, Funk and Scorpio just lift up Kurgan and toss him over the top rope to the floor, eliminating the oddities from the match. 
This is particularly surprising considering the fact that I'm pretty sure Kurgan has still not lost a televised match, and he's been portrayed as an unstoppable monster since he joined the company, but he just got easily taken out by a jobber and a 53-year-old man. Interesting decision. And then the elimination parade began. The next team out was Bradshaw and Taka Michinoku, as Taka charged toward Mankind, but Foley easily backdropped him over the top rope. Shortly thereafter, Scott Taylor foolishly held up Thrasher, so Brian Christopher could try to hit him with a running splash for some reason, but Thrasher moved out of the way, causing both members of Too Much to fall to the floor. Unfortunately for the Headbangers, no more than a few seconds later, Kane just picked up Mosh and press-slammed him out of the ring, so they ended up being eliminated as well. Animal then shoulder-blocked Steve Blackman off the ring apron to take out Blackman and Farouk, but then Kane tossed Animal immediately afterward, so LOD 2000 had to hit the showers too. That left two teams in the ring, Kane and Mankind on one side, with Terry Funk and Scorpio on the other. With Kane and Scorpio in the ring together, Funk and Foley rolled outside the ring and brawled with each other. Funk then proceeded to grab a steel chair and rolled back into the ring, where he whacked Kane in the back with it, but Kane no-sold it. Foley then leveled Funk in the head with the chair to incapacitate him, and Kane hit Scorpio with a jumping tombstone. To finish them off, Foley held the chair up to Funk's head, and Kane booted the chair right into his face, knocking Funk off the ring apron to the floor, and giving the win, and the number one contendership for the tag team titles, to the team of Kane and Mankind. After a quick commercial break, Paul Bearer is now in the ring with the victorious team. He wonders if Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker will even show up, and then, for some reason, Mankind recites a poem as the cell lowers. Listen up, one. Listen up, all. To Mankind and Kane and dear Uncle Paul. Because after tonight, all the stories they'll tell about how Stone Cold Steve Austin suddenly fell. But bad news for you, dead man. No, because our team's winning. It's not the end. It's just the beginning. Because look all around you. Steel bars and mesh. They'll break your bones. They'll rip at your flesh. Because at King of the Ring, it's my turn to play. I guarantee, dead man, it won't be a nice day. (laughs) After some more trash-talking by Paul Bearer, Stone Cold Steve Austin then does indeed come to the ring, ready to do battle. However, when Tony Schimmel announces The Undertaker, his music plays, but Taker doesn't show up. Amusingly, once his music stops playing, Schimmel then announces him again, and they play his music one more time, but Taker still doesn't show up. Mankind then takes that opportunity to go after the shorthanded Stone Cold, but Austin slams the cell door in his face and starts beating on him. Kane then goes after Austin, and the two of them brawl on the entrance ramp as Paul Bearer proceeds to lock himself inside the cell, presumably to stay out of harm's way. Seems like a strange decision. I mean, if your whole goal was to get Austin and Taker to accept a Hell in a Cell match, why lock them out of the cell? Odd choice. However, with Kane and Mankind double-teaming Austin, we then see that Bearer's plan has backfired, because the Undertaker tears through the bottom of the ring and now has Paul Bearer all to himself. Kane and Mankind then realize what's going on, so they run back toward the cell, but it's locked shut so they can't get in. I'll just point out the fact that a locked cell didn't stop Kane during his WWF debut, as he memorably ripped the door off his hinges to get inside, so perhaps he's lost a little bit of his power. But anyway, Austin then starts beating the crap out of Foley as Kane impressively climbs to the top of the cell and tries to punch through it. Meanwhile, in the ring, Undertaker gets in plenty of punches and kicks on Bearer, and he then rams him face-first into the cell. To Bearer's credit, he then does a pretty gruesome blade job because he ends up completely covered in blood. It looked brutal, but when you consider the fact that Bearer has been calling Taker's mother a whore for the past few months, I suppose he eventually had to suffer the consequences. Austin then proceeded to whack Mankind in the head with a sick, unprotected chair shot because, well, that's just how Foley rolls. Taker then picks up the steel stairs and smacks Bearer on the head with them, which had to have hurt because Bearer's back was turned, so Taker was literally hitting him from behind, so Paul didn't even have a chance to protect himself. Owie. Stone Cold then climbed on top of the cell and went after Kane, who was still trying to break through it. Austin leveled Kane with a bunch of punches, and we went off the air with both men brawling on top of the cell, 
which was pretty cool because I had completely forgotten that this had ever happened. Ah, but wait. If you watch this episode on the WWE Network, we actually got about four minutes of bonus footage called Extra Attitude, which picks up the action a few minutes after the show goes off the air. I say that it must have been at least a few minutes after the show ended, because Kane is now climbing down from the cell, and we can see that the cage door has now been opened, and The Undertaker has tied Mankind in the ropes. Undertaker and Kane then proceed to brawl up the ramp as Austin enters the ring to go after Mankind. Foley manages to get Austin in the mandible claw, but Stone Cold kicks him in the balls and hits him with a stunner. A referee then comes in and counts to three, so apparently that was an actual match, even though I don't recall hearing a bell to signify the beginning of it. Either way, the crowd popped huge for it, so I suppose that's what counts. The Undertaker stares down Austin for a while from the top of the ramp before turning around and heading backstage. Foley eventually manages to roll out of the ring and help carry the bloody pallbearer out of the cell as Austin celebrates in the ring, and that is how we end the June 15th, 1998 episode of Monday Night Raw. Good lord, that was quite a show, and I'll break it down further for you in just a bit, but for now, let's go to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. I freak beat slam it like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause yeah. I was down before the hype like Dusty Rhodes and Rob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they clucking. Cause WWF stands for women where we fucking. The Ratings Recap Last week, a pre-taped Raw scored a narrow victory over Nitro by the score of 4.26 to 4.12. Raw was back to being live again this week, but Nitro was airing one night after their Great American Bash pay-per-view. Some of the highlights from that event included Booker T defeating Chris Benoit to win their Best of Seven series 4-3 and earn a shot at Fit Finley's world television title later in the night, and Booker then proceeded to defeat Finley to become the new television champion. Goldberg beat Conan to retain his United States Championship, and after the match, Conan's pals Kurt Hennig and Rick Rude turned on him by jumping over to NWO Hollywood, because who cares? Hulk Hogan and Bret Hart defeated Randy Savage and Roddy Piper, and I only mention this because the combined age of all four men in this match was 173 years old. Brett was the youngster in the match at just 40 years of age. And in your main event, WCW World Tag Team Champions Sting and the Giant went head-to-head, with the stipulation being that the winner would get to ditch his partner and give the other belt to a new partner of his choosing. Sting won the match, and, spoiler alert, he ends up choosing Kevin Nash as his partner on Nitro. So that was the Great American Bash. Was Nitro able to capitalize on some of the intrigue from that pay-per-view and defeat Raw in the ratings? Well, no. This week, the WWF's lead proceeded to widen once again as the live episode of Raw defeated the post-bash Nitro 4.32 to 4.03. I'm not sure that WCW could have topped Raw in terms of quality on this night, but for the sake of argument, here's what you could have been watching over on Nitro. The Public Enemy defeated Hugh Morris and The Barbarian in a tag team street fight, and yes, The Barbarian is still collecting a paycheck in mid-1998. Chris Benoit defeated Fit Finley. Hiroyoshi Tenzin and Masahiro Chono defeated High Voltage. Canyon defeated Sick Boy. The Giant defeated Chris Adams. Fun side note here, this was the portion of the Big Show's career where he would smoke cigarettes on his way to the ring and completely ignore his pyro, which pretty much makes him the inspiration for this song. Cool guys don't look at explosions. They blow things up and then walk. Who's got time to watch an explosion? There's cool guy areas that they have to walk to. And funny enough, during this squash, Big Show doesn't even stop smoking during the match, and he actually delivers a choke slam to Chris Adams with a cigarette in his mouth. I suppose we could call that a smoke slam, no? Also, kudos to Bobby Heenan, who once quipped that at least you could say that smoking hadn't stunted his growth. The brain is always full of good one liners. Moving on, Kevin Nash and Sting defeated Harlem Heat to retain their WCW World Tag Team titles. And in your main event, a steel cage match between Diamond Dallas Page and Randy Savage went to a no contest when the cage was raised and NWO Black and White ran into the ring. 
I would take a jab at WCW for ending a cage match in a no contest, but if you watched Raw live on this night, you probably thought the same thing happened because the show went off the air before Austin pinned Foley. But anyway, I would say that Nitro seemed like a pretty forgettable episode, aside from the big show turning into the Marlboro Man, so with that in mind, let's take it to the Raw synopsis. Probably not a surprise here, but this episode of Raw gets a huge thumbs up from me. There was a lot of good to great content on this show. A Hell in a Cell match, a tag team Royal Rumble, Ken Shamrock and Dan Severn teaming up, Sean Waltman's first WWF match in over two years, and even the random Rock versus Vader match, which presumably happens just this once. If you get a chance, I would unquestionably recommend that you give this episode a look, because it really is mostly enjoyable from start to finish. My only complaint about Raw is that Mankind has basically been depicted as a complete afterthought over the past few weeks. The main event feud is Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Kane, with The Undertaker looming as someone who is potentially pulling the strings behind the scenes, but Mick Foley is depicted as basically just being along for the ride. Even during the Cell match tonight, Austin was essentially just kicking the crap out of Mankind when he wasn't preoccupied with Kane, which makes Foley look like a very minimal threat even though he's one of the people who will actually be competing in the damn Cell match at King of the Ring. Retroactively going back now and watching how Mankind has been portrayed during the lead-up to the pay-per-view, I think Foley's upcoming performance at King of the Ring really starts to make a lot more sense, because I imagine his mindset at this time must have been, what the hell can I do to get these people to pay attention to me again? He may be an afterthought on Raw right now, but let's just say that quite a bit of the attention will shift over to him after King of the Ring. Stay tuned for that. And on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, and send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com, or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes, because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I will now leave you with a clip of when a certain superstar debuted back on October 23rd, 1995, and, coincidentally, the people doing the commentary during his match are the two people he tried to make a citizen's arrest on during this very episode of Raw. So enjoy that, and I will catch you next time. Newcomer Avatar. Looks like a karate fighter to me. Avatar against Brian Walsh. Let's see what happens here. Avatar making his debut on Raw. And King, uh, how does it feel to, to wear a mask? What? Well, I mean, that's not, oh, that's not yours. You've never worn a mask before? Well, Halloween's next week, McMahon. Let's see. In any event, I would think it would be sort of difficult to, to wear a mask in the, in the squared circle. Well, I don't know. From the looks of Avatar's face walking to the ring, he needs to wear 24 hours a day. And uh, Avatar going up to the top and lost his balance. What do you know about Avatar, King? Well, this is my first time to see him, just like it is you. I've heard a lot about him. Heard he's a great uh, martial arts expert. We'll see. Oh, my goodness. Hooks the leg. Does he hit him? Yes. The winner of the match, Avatar. Avatar, victorious, making his debut in the World Wrestling Federation. Nice looking young man, what's the matter with you? Nice looking young man. Yeah. Woo!